0: Welcome to Failed Critics. Uh, this week we'll be reviewing Lawless, among other things. I'm your host, Steve Norman, joined, as I always am, by James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Um, so yes, like I said, this week we'll be reviewing uh, Lawless. Um James, do you want to tell us a bit about the podcast so far?
1: Yes, um, yeah, we've not kind of kept up to date so much with. um we've had some good feedback actually about splitting the podcast into two uh and I hope that our listeners at home are actually thinking, yeah, it's quite nice to listen to it in you know less than an hour uh and with our two times so people have responded well, so that's really good numbers numbers are good um dread uh has been very the dread review last week been very well received, so that's great and uh yeah, just looking at the numbers. It's great to see we've got, we've got people listening in, um, not just in the United Kingdom, not just in the United States, quite a few people in California. So again, I still think we're clearly influence makers in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, um, but you know, the Netherlands, India, the Philippines, China, um, uh, Indonesia. Yeah. In fact, we've got more listeners in Indonesia than we have in France. So, so we're, uh, we're, we're allowed for the, uh, the,
0: Quag is everything that's banned on the internet. Exactly, in China. we
1: are. Um, I, I can only take from that that we are officially approved by the Chinese Communist government. Yes, uh,
0: the, the dear China leader, the, the dear leader says we're okay. So
1: yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Either uh, that, or everyone who listens is really dodgy and uses like servers to reroute so that they can't trace the illegal shit that they're doing on the internet. Imagine if someone's going to all that hassle just to listen to this podcast. Uh, like, it might, might just be. Them. Uh, coincidence that they listen to this podcast as well, doing all sorts of illegal stuff. No, no, I, I think they are doing it just to get a hold of our podcast. Don't ruin the moment, Jack. It, as, <laughs> as we're reviewing
0: Lawless this week, I imagine there's a lot of bootleggers and
1: that's uh, right, criminals, yes.
0: gangsters who listen to this. And um, if you are listening, don't kill me. I haven't done anything wrong. <laughs>
1: Surely you, Surely you should be threatening them. Surely they should be scared of you as well. We all know. What? Yeah. For you your fearless crime, fighter, Steve. That's not... <laughs> come on, Steve. <laughs> now, no, you're begging for mercy. Only, only
0: petty crime. I mean.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah. I see. Got to work my way up to
0: proper. Yeah. Uh, shall we go on to the quote quiz? Where <laughs> we oh, <no>. It's <laughs> come <laughs> on, Owen. <laughs> it's Harry. currently, I believe. Uh Jerry four, James two, myself one. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, Everyone knows. Owen everyone knows. i have got no points. Yes, very yes. good. Yes, you're
0: <laughs> you're quite literally pointless, Owen. Uh, yeah. This week is probably quite an easy one. Um but that's because I completely forgot to do it until five minutes ago, so <laughs> <laughs> uh we'll start off then. You all know me know how i earn a living i'll catch this bird for you but it ain't gonna be easy jerry yes jerry
1: jaws it is jaws oh, jesus <laughs> should have been in there quicker <laughs> sorry
0: i would have oh. thought that'd be one film that James would have got
1: straight yeah away. i, I should have i'm distracted there's a fo- there's possibly a, a fantastic comeback on in the background in the the Liga match I've got running on mute in the background. I'm so professional. Sorry. So <laughs> someone was four 0 down. It's four two now with five minutes left. I'll, I'll keep you updated.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> who? Jerry hasn't seen any films this week. So who wants to kick us off? Uh, let's go with Owen.
2: Okay. Yeah. Film um, I want to talk about is uh, Barry Lyndon. The, um, I know that you're, you're not that big a fan of Kubrick, Steve, but um, I'm going to talk about it anyway, despite that. (laughs) Uh, Basically, if you haven't seen it, it's um, set in the 18th century in a small... Well, it starts off set in a small village in Ireland. The guy called Redmond Barry, who's a young farm boy, um, who falls in love with his cousin, name's back.
0: His name's backwards, surely. Redmond Barry Redmond. (laughs) 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 I want to just... His name sounds backwards to me, but...
1: Yeah. I'm more interested in the fact that he's fallen in love with his cousin but maybe yeah, it's island do. what do yeah. you expect yeah. <laughs> he's from the south coast he's used to
2: that stuff. in <laughs> uh, I've interrupted you've interrupted my flow now <laughs> that's it it's Small lost village. the rest of the podcast <laughs> let's it. move on to James <laughs> um, but basically yeah his cousin is, um, she's a bit of a, a, a tart really and she um, leads him on and stuff but she also ends up um, getting engaged to a British captain played by John Quinn, uh, called John Quinn, actually, who's played, with, who's played by the guy whose name escapes me, but he was, um, uh, Reggie Perrin, uh, and he's featured in a couple of other, um, you know, he's in Rising of Leonard Yeah, that's him, yeah. Leonard Orsiter, Yeah. So, okay. that's quite a nice little cameo, which, um, which is great. But he's in 2001 Space Odyssey as well. Ooh. He gets one of the only speaking roles, which is quite cool. Yes. Um, but anyway, Barry. Uh, Redmond Barry challenges him for uh, in a duel, uh, and he wins and escapes to Dublin, where he's kind of robbed on the road and stuff. And without any alternative, he joins. He ends up joining the British Army to fight in the Seven Years' War, uh, and then I mean, he goes on and on a bit. Uh, kind of, it, it essentially follows his life, follows Redmond Barry's life, to eventually uh, marrying this quite wealthy uh, aristocratic lady. Um, but you know, it, it was one of the few Kubrick films that I hadn't actually seen. Um I've seen quite a lot of his other catalog, you know, and uh, yeah. I, I, I was—I've heard a lot of good things about it. I think it featured quite highly in the Sight and Sound list, actually. But um, yeah, it was one of the few that I hadn't actually seen. And this same thing happened with it. That happens with every Kubrick film I watch on the first view. Uh, I think, oh yeah, that was that was brilliant. It was a really good film, but you know, probably not his best. Um, but it's—it's it's got the same kind of. Feeling to it as all of his other films do as well, in which that you think, well, actually, the more times you see this, it's probably going to improve on repeated viewings and stuff. Because it's a perfect film snobs kind of film. It's got everything in it that you know that, that you expect to be in a in a Kubrick film. It's got great music in it, which is really catchy and went round and round in my head for the rest of the week. Um, <laughs> it's got brilliant performances in it as well. Great cinematography with the use of lighting and. Is that the one know, where they didn't use any artificial lights? Is that the one? Uh, that, I I don't think they used any, um, that I could remember, no. But I don't, I'd have to check that. I don't know if that's a fact or just natural
1: lighting. Cause that's what, uh, um, Malik's been doing recently. Malik said he's yeah. never used it. He's only evidently used natural lighting from now on, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Possibly. It's, it's an I'm... interesting, it, you can definitely see on film when they've used natural lighting and it. it is, it, when it works, it's lovely.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just great when you've got like the shots of them in hand like old country grounds, and you've got the light that's just streaming through windows and stuff. It looks fantastic. Um, so I can see why it is rated quite highly, because it's, you know, it's just typical Kubrick style there, very um, quintessentially Kubrick-esque. Um, but it's got great costumes as well. You know, it's very authentic feeling to it. Uh I mean, as I say, it's the perfect film, Snobs film. Every scene just looks brilliant. It looks like a moving photograph. You know, I know I that's basically what films are, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's got very visual presence to it. Each scene just has something about it that's, that looks just awesome. Um, and, you know, I although Kubrick does kind of get a kick in every so often from people for being quite emotionally cold. I know we've talked about it before on the podcast. I think it's very... Harsh criticism to level at all of his films because you know, the eyes wide shot 2001, Clockwork Orange, they do have this like kind of emotionally detached feeling to it. Um, whereas you know, it's very cynical and analytical portrayals of humans, and mm. you know, that, that's fair enough, I think. But you know, passive glory, full metal jacket, and now I think Barry Linden as well fits into this, this style where, um, it's kind of, it is kind of analyzing the human traits and stuff, but it's, it's very. It grabs you in an emotional way. There's a scene in it with um, uh, with his son, Redmond Barry's son, uh, which is very moving and, you know, it, it feels very genuine. It's, got, it's kind of reminiscent of um, Gone with the Wind, in a way. There's a bit where he's asking for horses and stuff, so I kind of knew what to expect. So uh, I didn't end up like James and blubbing over the, <laughs> over the scene. <laughs> but it, it was still quite moving. I was still um, moved by it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to pick fault with something like this. You know, it's kind of occasionally during the film, something didn't feel right. I can't really put my finger on exactly what it was. Sometimes it'd be just kind of like a little action that one of the characters did and you thought, it doesn't feel right. Um, that's just kind of uh, nitpicking, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm hardly in a position to crit- criticise something as, as brilliant as this, really. Uh, and I mean, it just, uh, Kubrick is definitely my favourite director, but, uh, and it's just great to still be able to discover, like, classic films of his that just, you know, that I absolutely uh, fall in love with. And, um, I'm not looking forward to the day that there's no more films of his left for me to see. Uh, it's just going to be a very depressing day when I've watched the last of his, uh, his back catalogue. But, um, yeah, I do, I do absolutely love his work. And this is, this is no exception really. It's, What's your favorite? Uh, 2001, Space Odyssey. I think it's one, it's one of my favourite films. It's another one that, that I saw and I thought the first time, yeah, that's pretty good, but I, I don't think that's his best one. And then on rewatches, it just, I just got more and more amazed by it with every watch and yeah, it's de- definitely my f- favourite now.
1: I'd, uh, yeah, I, Barry Lyndon's one of the few that I've not seen either because I've got this, I've got a Kubrick Blu-ray box set with a load of documentaries and stuff and everything on it mm. and I need to Probably get into that um yeah I, I know exactly what you mean about i think all of his films that i enjoy i've had to watch more than once and you definitely enjoy it i think you definitely enjoy them on second viewing and third viewing so i think clockwork orange is my favorite but yeah. um 2001's definitely up that and dr strange love as well dr strange love yeah i mean um, i think so dr strange love's mine i
2: think just out Passive glory i love Passive glory i think that's <laughs> That's one of them I
1: haven't seen actually. Paths of Glory, I do need to watch that. Oh
2: yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's a, it's it's really underrated, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always forget he did, um,
1: is it Spartacus?
2: Spartacus,
1: Yeah, Yeah, I always, it feels kind of totally out of sync with a lot of his other work. Uh, I need to rewatch that. I've got that sat on my planner to watch again at some point because I've not seen that for years and it'd be interesting to see how Kubrickian it feels.
2: But I think that one came... It like, doesn't feel very Kubrickian. Yeah. I mean, it came because Kirk Douglas wanted to do his own epic film, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was to Matt... Was Ben-Hur out just before it? And I he think thought, it was well, just before uh, it, yeah. He just he wanted to do his own one and got Kubrick on board. So I think it was kind of a collaboration almost. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, Full Metal Jacket, I think was the first one where I, I watched for the first time and thought, no, I absolutely love this film. This is definitely one of my favorites. Mm. And then as I rewatched others, yeah, I mean, it, 2001 is just one of the best films ever made. Um, and Barry Lyndon's a very good film. It's not quite at that level, but mm. it's definitely worth the watch, um, James, when you get round to it on your, oh. your box set.
0: Uh, well, James is reviewing two films. so I'll get in before he, Jabber's on for the next half an hour I expect um, I've seen two films this week One I'm not going to talk about that much It's The Hangover Part 2 um, Why They Bother the first one was a fairly <laughs> decent comedy So why go and ruin it with a sequel that is pretty much just the same film But set in a different setting there's um, a
1: third one out due next summer as well. It, it, oh, a what? Yeah, fuck.
0: And it just makes me worry. I mean, they're doing Anchorman two, and and just.
1: You know. oh, I think Anchorman two will be good. I'm. Um, I'm. Um, um, Anchorman say two's taken so long to come around. I think it, it's probably more likely to be good than sort of a cash cow kind of thing. Yeah, no, I think they've, they've had enough time to work on ideas. Hangover Part Three is just going to be shockingly bad, though. Mm. Um, but. Anyway,
0: the main film I'm going to review is Glengarry Gary, Glenn Ross. Nice. That I hadn't seen before. Why hadn't I seen it before? <laughs> it's brilliant.
1: Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously
0: starring Al Pacino, uh, Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin and probably one of the best cameos I've seen in a film. Probably the best cameo I've seen in a film since I saw Bill Murray in Zombieland. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: It's brilliant. It's like his line yeah. in it is just so... Fantastic about uh, the leads a week, yeah. Fucking leads a week. Your week, yeah. just yeah. brilliant. So welcome. Such
1: a brilliant bully and that, yeah. But, but it's the brass balls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of takes like quite a a mundane job, I suppose. Real estate salesman. I suppose you know it's quite a competitive world for the salesman. But what would normally think if someone just said, "Oh, there's a film about real estate salesmen." Why would I watch that? <laughs> but no, it's just really good. It's kind of, the, the characters are all really arrogant, which is quite good. And they're all obviously competing to sell the most real estate. Um, Jack Lemon's really good as Shelley Levine. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I just read that he quite obviously, after I read it, he's the uh, inspiration for Gil in the Simpsons. Gil and the Simpsons yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Once you read it, it's, a, it's really obvious. But it's sort of like that I suppose he's he's down on his luck really, isn't he? He's sort of failing and the person who sells the less real estate's gonna get the sack, so they're all trying to obviously um sell more than everyone else. No one really likes Alec Baldwin coming in from the boss and shouting the odds, especially Ed Harris, but uh Al Pacino's really good in it as well.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of the best casts I've ever seen put together for a film. It's um is but and it's good because obviously it's based on David Mamet's play, um, and they got people who can do stage acting to do it as well. I think I
0: think I read works. Al Pacino wanting to do the play version of it but couldn't because he was doing another play at the time.
1: Yes, I mean, yeah. Um, I think it was Shakespearean in London. Actually, he was at the time.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think there's three things to take away from Glen Gary Glen Ross. You know, one is that. Leads are essential in the real estate business. I think everyone learns that lesson. Yeah, uh, salesmen can be a bunch of twats sometimes. They can and, uh, be a so bun- extremely <laughs> talented bunch of actors. Yeah. Take part in this film,
0: salesmen and real estate salesmen especially can be a bunch of arrogant, backstabbing bastards who, will, <laughs> yeah, who exactly. would mm-hmm. crawl over their own mothers to not get the sack.
1: <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because I, I, when I was a student, I worked in places like that. Basically, mine was telephone. Uh, I, I did, um, I did time, I did, um, those kind of, you've won a free holiday, timeshare holiday. You've just got to come along and listen to a presentation. Oh, you're one thing. of
0: those, are you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, that one I left after two weeks. I did another one where I booked in people, uh, to, you know, those like massive thousand pound cleaning systems, like, that is a Hoover and vacuums you and does all sorts. Of, I used, I used to book appointments for people to go and have their carpet cleaned with that and then get a present. Uh, I didn't last very long in either of those jobs because I am weaker than Jack Lemon. I'm terrible <laughs> at it. Uh, I got sacked from one and I walked out of the other one after two weeks. Horrible, horrible. But this film really, really accurately portrays that world. So, and the psychology of that world so brilliantly. Um, now I can always watch Glenn Carrie Cameron. Species uh, Spacey's in as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, it's just uh, it's such a brilliant cast.
0: But I mean, she- Shelly Levine, just, it's when he's in the phone box and it's pissing down with rain and he can't get a sale for, you know, he's just phoning people on a pay phone. It's just sort of brilliant how desperate yeah. he is in a way.
2: It's great on that. He- it doesn't try to make you sympathize with the characters too much either, does no, it? It still no, portrays them as he's really... Very honest, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really bitter salesman types, yeah. and
1: it's, yeah, it's fantastic for that, it's, I think. It really, it reminds me of, it's a modern day, um, Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, uh, which has also been made into some, a really good, uh, screen version as well, but, yeah, no, it's a fantastic, fantastic I mean, film.
0: Al Pacino's character is probably the least of an arsehole in it, and he's a bit of an arsehole.
1: Yeah, yeah. and he's not in it much either. It's, he's, he's got that fantastic, um, uh, opening monologue in the yeah. bar. Um, and yeah, and then he's, he's in the office later, but no, uh, J- Jack Lemon is uh, it, They're all fantastic in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so are you saying in my week off this week, that is a film that I should watch as I've never seen it? Yeah, oh, definitely. definitely. It's
0: on. It's on. It's on Netflix US. I'm. I don't know if it's on Netflix UK, but I mean, you can probably get a copy on DVD relatively cheap, and it's yeah. definitely worth. It's not one of them films that's going to look spectacular if you upgrade to Blu-ray, so you can get a cheap copy on DVD. Oh, no, that's definitely
1: a character piece, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And I'd, um, I'd definitely go for it. Cool. I'll
1: probably watch that this weekend. Sorted. Um. James, what two films have you watched this week? Okay, um, I've I've actually watched three, um, but I just want to quickly say, I, watched, I finally got round to watching How to Train Your Dragon uh, the other night, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not going to talk in depth about it, because we talked about it on the podcast before, I think it was, um, I think Jerry spoke about it before, but it was a really lovely animated film, uh, and it looked fantastic, and it kept my toddler's attention for uh almost all the film as well, so... Uh, no, loved it. So that was great. Um, but the It wasn't just was so much better than the trailers made out as well. Yeah, I exactly. Think it surprised me. It, it, was, it felt like, uh, and again, I felt like a Pixar film in terms of, uh, yeah. it was funny. It had a really good story and it looked fantastic. Uh, and I see that they're re-releasing it in 3D later this year. Um, but I'm hope, I, I, I might actually go and watch it in 3D because simply because I really enjoyed the film and I think it would be quite nice to see it on the big screen. Um,
0: just quick, just quickly, people making trailers lately have got a lot to answer for because they're not doing a very good job.
1: It's very true.
0: Whoever sort of sits there and cuts together bits from a film to put together what, a minute and a half, two minute trailer, they're really cocking up at the moment.
2: It's just the ones that are full of spoilers as well that do make it There's the worst. no need to put like what happens in the final scene of the film in the trailer yeah.
0: but i think we i think we spoke about before that sometimes film studios not so much the directors and the producers and the and the actors and the people who make the films but the studios and, and like the mm. people who are responsible for putting the trailers out and marketing and advertising it, the films treat the cinema goer as an idiot yeah no matter what kind of film it is no matter what film it is treat him as an idiot and i think I didn't see the film, but Magic Mike seemed to be the biggest example of this. Oh, yeah,
1: that was definitely, um, completely mismarketed. Yeah. Although I say mismarketed, the fact is it actually did very well at the pocketbook. Oh, so the marketing it, company did what they planned yeah. to do, which was get loads of people's pro- film.
0: It probably stopped a lot of people going to see Magic Mike that would have enjoyed the film. But the way they put yeah. it across is, it's a film about male strippers, it's probably a lot of blokes going, well, i ain't going to bloody watch that.
1: Yeah. Like you lot.
0: <laughs> just, I don't you talking about yeah. just, too, just too uncomfortable with my own sexuality To sit in a film on my own about male strippers No Steve
1: you? No, Steve, tempted to we're do. too comfortable with our own sexuality That you we know we don't want to see oiled up men yeah. There's a no difference
0: And then I watched Wrestlemania So <laughs>
1: Wow. Anyway, I'll let you
0: carry on now, Jane.
1: Yeah, so, where was I? Yes, the two, I went on, uh, yeah, this week I went to my, my local art cinema, uh, the Phoenix in Leicester, um, because I'd had a summer of blockbusters and I wanted to go and watch some nice arty films. And, uh, I saw two of the best films I've seen this year, uh, on one night. It was fantastic. First one was The Imposter, uh, which is a documentary from the producers who did, uh, Man uh, Man on the Wire. Um, basically, it's a documentary. It's from a, a director called Bart Layton, British director, and it is his debut feature. Um, but the documentary is a, it's a true love story, obviously it's a documentary, um, of a young Frenchman who convinced a Texas family that he was their 16-year-old son who'd been missing for three years. Basically, in the early 90s, uh, Texas family their son goes missing. They oh, don't I heard follow about
0: him. this. I can't.
1: Yeah. I was Three on the years radio
0: somewhere. Up. I can't remember.
1: Yeah. A kid turns up in Spain, but with a French accent, uh, saying that he's their son and they accept him back as their son. Where it gets interesting is this, the, the, and the, the genius of this documentary is the fact that they have got Frederick Bourdin, who is the, the young man. Did it so they are interviewing him and he explains how he did it. And what's really interesting is, um, he was actually 23 at the time, so he's passing himself off as a 16 year old. Well, I mean, Um, you look at
0: the cast of Dawson's Creek, it's not as hard as you think, (laughs)
1: Uh, Uh, but he's also got different color eyes, um, he just looks different, different color hair, uh, and the documentary takes a weird turn when it starts investigating the motives for the family to accept him back so readily. Uh and I don't want to go into it too much I don't want to spoil it too much because it is weirdly for a documentary it had a real usual suspects vibe at times uh, and a Cohen brothers type vibe as well. um which was brilliant. uh there's some of the characters some of the the local characters in it um are brilliant there's this one guy called Charlie Parker, who's this old private investigator, and he's sitting down in a diner talking about eating pancakes with this kid and stuff like that and he He went really old school. no one else uh was disbelieving this kid's story. basically the kid was saying he was kidnapped by the military and then raped. And they put special solution in his eyes to dye his eye color so that people can recognize him. And, and all this was on US networks. He was being interviewed on US networks and things like that. But the FBI were looking into it. And then this private investigator did something about measuring his, his, this southern man's going, well, I saw Scotland Yard. They used to measure people's ears and, and, it to, and then I wrong the FBI, but people don't like to hear you talking about ears. And he was just this brilliant stereotype. You did see him in a Cohen Brothers film, but he wouldn't let it go. He knew this kid wasn't who he said he was. Um, and then just the story unravels and then builds up to a fantastic crescendo. I'm, I don't want to say too much more simply because I think the less you know about the story, uh, going into seeing it, the better it is, but absolutely fantastic. I think it's my favorite documentary of the year. Um, and someone asked me a question that they felt that it was a little bit manipulative in terms of um relying on speculation uh to drive the narrative rather than just reporting the facts um and i think i think someone said that to me about this film I, and i don't think that's entirely fair but i do think it's quite interesting that the three films that i have three documentaries i've really enjoyed this year have been dreams of a life um in into the abyss and this and they've all been a had kind of mysterious death stroke disappearance at the heart of each of them and it's really interesting that none of those documentaries actually really kind of uncovers the truth and i think the the mystery is a macguffin it's not these documentaries aren't there to solve a mystery they're there to examine human behavior uh and in that sense this film does that fantastically cannot recommend this film highly enough it's absolutely brilliant um, and then the second film I went to see which I think will be far more divisive among people but I am already now thinking about it as my film of the year um, I adore it Barbarian Sound Studio um, it's the second film by uh, writer and director Peter Strickland who um, made just trying to remember the name of the film he made made a film a few years ago for about £27,000 that his uncle left him in his will It's called Kathleen Varga um, that was three years ago and he's now made this film it stars Toby Jones who is the kind of weird short round faced man from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and a few others he was in uh, The Hunger Games uh, as well as the co-commentator with Stanley Tucci very distinctive looking man um, now this film, basically, he's a sound engineer. set in the '70s, and he's a sound engineer who goes to work in a post-production studio, the Barbarian Sound Studio, for an Italian horror film in the '70s. The kind of the giallo uh, uh, films of the early '70s, um, where they were just churning out these kind of thrillers full of sex and violence and supernatural stuff going on. And he's brilliant. The film in this one is called The Equestrian Vortex um and from what i heard of it because you this is the great thing this is the sound studio so all you all you see and hear of the film um are the sounds that uh, played by toby jones is making um it's it, it's very david lynch at times it it gets a bit surreal yeah like i say very lynching in the last half an hour um but i loved it it's not Strictly brilliant narratively, although it does tell a story, but its tone and the sense of dread it uh, brings upon you, this film, is unbelievable and it sucked me in like very few films have this year. Um, The title sequence is the title sequence of The Equestrian Vortex, this film about... uh, I think it's about a horse riding girl and witches and a nunnery or something like that. It's uh, it sounds like I was watching it thinking I bet Owen would love to watch the equestrian (laughs) attacks. I was watching it thinking, uh, and there's this bit, it's very funny at times. Um, the Italian producer is fantastic, who is really grumpy. Um, he's very short-tempered with Gilderoy, and he keeps telling Gilderoy that he should be doing this for for art and he shouldn't be doing it for money, because Gilderoy's like, concerned about his expenses yeah. getting out to Italy. Um, the director keeps saying it's not a horror film, this is a Santini film. Uh, yeah. and He's very, very precious about how amazing his film is. Um, but then when they're recording the sounds someone's reading a description. someone says a description just before the reel starts going to say what is about to happen so that uh gilderoy can do the sound effects and there's um things like he's talking about uh, the red hot v- uh, the red hot poker is now inserted into the witch's vagina and he's mm-hmm. like having to pour water uh, oil onto a boiling frying pan to make the sound of a- it's it's quite visceral at times and another bit where um that this actor comes in to do to do the sound of a goblin, and it says the dangerously aroused goblin prowls the dormitory and it's just it's played very straight and it's it's hilariously funny at times and then just really gets under your skin you don 't know if Gilderoy is imagining lots of what's going on there's talk of the production being cursed as well and um it's and it all takes place within the studio. It's wonderfully well written, wonderfully well acted, but ultimately the important thing is the tone of it is just so perfect. It is a beautifully shot tonal piece of work and it reminds me of, that cinema doesn't just have to be about this is a story, this is A to B. Um we, this, this wasn't like that at all. This was very much, um this was very much a piece of art. Uh, in a way, this was how cinematic art should be. And like I say, some people will absolutely hate this film. It's, and we talked earlier, um, about Barry Lyndon being a, a film lover's, uh, film. Uh, this is definitely a film critics film. I can imagine lots of people who go and see this who, um, don't have a love for early seventies, uh, Italian horror maybe not will not enjoy this but honestly it i cannot stop thinking about this film absolutely brilliant and again it's in independent cinemas go and see it because you will have an experience it it's an experience watching this film you may not enjoy it but you will know that you have seen a piece of very powerful cinema
0: and um, where did you see both of the films that you've reviewed.
1: I, I saw them at the Leicester Phoenix, which I've mentioned on here before. It's a, it's a lovely little independent cinema um, in Leicester, which uh, shows some fantastic films. Today they were showing a double bill of The 39 Steps and The Third Man. It's lovely stuff. Oh, wow. It's a shame I couldn't go there. Um, but yeah, really, really lovely independent cinema and I can't praise them highly enough. Well, we
0: know how um, mentioning cinemas and publicising them doesn't get us in for free. The Odeon.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, but do you know what? I was more than happy to pay my money for these two films. I, I, I genuinely felt like I'd had a fantastic night out at the cinema. Um, yeah, it, it restored my faith in cinema.
0: Good. Um, before we move on to our review of Lawless, we'd best do some movie news. So I understand you've got some for us, James.
1: Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Um Two of the films that I think we've had not great responses to uh, as a podcast, uh, Ted and The Bourne Legacy. Apparently their sequels have gone into uh, development now. Ted is understandable because it's made a heck of a lot of money for something that costs about 40 to 50 million, and, I think.
0: And um, when you, when you think about Ted, you just think that there's so many... I mean, we weren't particularly enamored with it, but there's so many Family Guy and Seth McFarlane fans around that they'll go, yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll flood the cinemas to see it. And, yeah. And if it, you
1: compare the UK grosses as well, like, um, looking at the top 10 that's out at the moment, mm. you've got like, um, Dread made a million and it's one week. Wallace mm. has made just under a million. Brave being there six weeks, made 19 million. Ted's mm. been there six weeks, made 29 million. Yeah. It's the exactly. Dark Knight Rides has made 55 for comparison, you know. So yeah. It's, it's picking up a lot of money. Yeah. It's almost made, it's made over half of its original budget back just in the UK market. I think uh, worldwide it's looking at 300 million or something. Um, so, Which is yeah, that's that how much shit it is. Yeah. Well, yeah <laughs> uh, but that, I suppose that's, so that's understand. Interestingly, I'm um, very interested in the fact that they have commissioned at least development of another Bourne film, considering critical response to it wasn't great, and box office-wise, it wasn't great as well. And they've done it so soon, so I can yes. only hope, um, that they are going to try and get Matt Damon back, because a Bourne film without Bourne is... I mean, it, Bourne was, Bourne is, it was... I thought it was alright. I, I thought it was worth a sequel, so I'm not going to quibble with this one. I think this is actually, it's What's got that? a lot of scope for improvement over the next... Uh, you know some subsequent films as well. I, I, think, I
0: just I think, think two born films without born is getting a bit silly. You need it doesn't really
1: work. I think I said at the time I would forgive this film if it led to a, another proper born film. Mm. that and uh, um, and again, I feel like I still feel the same about that. I mean, it, just, um, it, it just kind of smacks of
0: unoriginality. But then in like in cinema and people making the films. But then we spoke last week when we're we were just picking up some sort of film trivia, like mm. Die Hard 3 was originally going to be a script for Lethal Weapon 4. Well, I mean, mm. if people are think, coming up with original scripts, and then someone says, you make more money, that's a good script, but you'll make more money if you just make that into the newborn film, rather than like a, a completely new story. Yeah. People are going to cash in on it, aren't they? The people, you know, it depends, you've got to balance out why people are getting into the industry of making films. Do they want to make money, or do they want to make films, and their money's a, a bonus.
1: Yeah, well, luckily, yeah, uh, you know, as with the film that I was doing, Barbarian Sound Studio was made by people out of love who wanted to make some great. So there, there are, there's, there's room for both and they are there. Um, but yeah, it's interesting actually, I think only one of Universal's films that was out this summer hasn't got a sequel planned now, because they've also got a sequel planned for Snow White and the Huntsman. There's another that, film there this summer success? that they've got a sequel planned for as well. And it, it's the way it, it's quite interesting. It, it's quite comparable to the computer games industry. I remember a good 10, 15 years ago when I was, uh, and I was playing on my Amstrad CPC 464, you know, I had a Spectrum at one point. Um, there was so many original games back then. And these days, again, It's about the yearly franchise. It's about the fact that people like to uh, spend their money on something they know they're already going to like.
0: Computer games is slightly different in a way because you're playing the roles yourself. So if it's so Call of Duty and you're, you're playing the same character over a few games, so you get connected with that character because you're essentially carrying out his actions. It's a bit different to a film in a way
1: yeah but at the same time it is a fact that it's it's a symptom of people like to people now or at least studios think people like to spend their money on something they already know they're going to like um and i think that's the case with a lot of these sequels that are coming out is studios think people like i like, i would have gone i'm i went to see born obviously for this but i would have gone to see it Regardless whether I was doing this podcast or not, because I like the Bourne films, mm. and I would have at least wanted to try it out. Well, I suppose, whereas if it had just been an action film starring Jeremy Renner, same story pretty much, mm. but without any. Bo- Even I'm guilty of it. I would have been less likely to watch. I was more likely to watch it because it was because um, it was a Bourne film. And if someone is you know intelligent and uh, erudite and cinematically uh, knowledgeable as me. <laughs> I say with my tongue firmly in cheek, um, has fallen for that trick, then no wonder everyone else does.
0: Well, I mean, I suppose that the biggest sort of example of what we're talking about is the last Indiana Jones and the last Star Wars that came out in the cinema. Well, not so much Revenge of the Sith, it wasn't that bad, but I mean, you know, the last Star Wars trilogy and
1: uh, How long Jones. did it take for Steve to go and start <laughs> moaning about George Lucas again? No, but, you know, and in, Indiana
0: Jones and the and the thingy
1: of the crystal skull, they
0: were crap. But if they brought out another Indiana Jones or another Star Wars tomorrow, we'd all be going, except Owen, because exactly. he's got they're no exactly.
1: soul. If you go, know, it's the same reason you go and watch a football team, even though they're absolutely shit, because you still have that hope that <laughs>
0: because
1: they were gone once,
2: it might happen again. Yeah. But you do the same thing for actors, though, don't you? I mean, yeah. you I mean, like, I've been watching all these Van Damme films. I know, like, at least half of them are going to be terrible and half of them have been terrible. But it's just kind of like... it. But it's brand association at the heart of it, isn't it? You you associate that yeah. brand with something positive, so you just want more of it. And, you know, you can't really blame the studios for capitalising on that, I don't no. think. No. no, no, exactly. Um And as long as... My, my main issue would be if
1: these films took up funds for some interesting films... Uh, as long as there's still room and I think there always will still be room for interesting films mm. they just might not quite get the audiences that we think they deserve uh, Should we now move on to our
0: review of this week's new release Lawless um, screenplay by Nick Cave directed by John Hillcote starring Shia Beef, Tom Hardy Gary Oldman, Guy Pearce and others Yeah. So what did we all make of the film then?
2: I really liked it. I was
1: surprised by how much I liked it. Okay. I I liked it. I couldn't love it. Yeah, I was the same. I thought it was good, but it wasn't quite there. I think there was some potential as well that didn't get, Mm. it it didn't get fully used. I think there was a potential for a really, really great film in there. At the end, it was just, it was a good film. But I think there could have been so much more out of it. I don't know. I was kind Mm. of
0: nonplussed about the whole thing. It was a bit, the second half, or the third third, depending on how I decided to divide this film up, was really good, um, but I don't think it really got going until um, Gary Oldman's character and Guy Pearce's character really stepped up their involvement. Before that, I thought found it was kind of slow.
1: Although you say Gary Oldman's character, uh, he's in it. He must be in it for a grand total of about five mm, minutes. It, it was time. it was
0: essentially a, a cameo, but I mean. Yeah. What, you know, his character. Well, he does
2: manage to twat someone with his spade in those yeah, five yeah. minutes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah.
1: And he has a brilliant wink, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. He's just <disgusting>. great. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested to hear Owen and Steve on this. Cause, uh, me and Jerry are kind of like in the middle. We quite liked it. Didn't think it was quite as good as it should have been, but oh, I'm really interested to hear why, what, what Owen liked so much about it and also what Steve was so nonplussed about.
0: I mean, I think it just started really slow and it just took a while to get going. When it did get going, it was quite good and quite enjoyable. It just took a while to get there. And just some of the performances weren't... Some of the performances were good and some weren't good. I mean, Shia the Beef was just his typical plastic wooden... I
1: thought
2: it was one of his best
1: performances. Yeah, Yeah,
2: it was my... I've never liked him in anything I've seen him in before. But he was... Probably my favourite part of the film. I didn't. I just... was really amazed that actually he put in. A, I thought he put in a really good performance. He was better than usual. He wasn't that great. I thought Tom yeah. Hardy stole every scene he was in. To mm. be honest,
0: and and most of the time Tom Hardy was just grunting.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I found it quite. Of... In... I don't note down in my little notebook actually that uh, after all the um the Ferrari about his Bane in the Dark Knight Rises, I think I understood Bane. More than I understood his character in this. <laughs> yeah, lot that, the was, the that was, that was one problem. Really uh, difficult to understand. Really. Uh, yeah. At times. Oh, I
0: and I think mm-hmm. it might be partly because of the accent of the people they were portraying. I did find them quite hard to understand.
1: Yeah. Um, I was Jesus, about 50% of the film I was. There, like, there was quite an interesting, um, I, cause I went to a screening with a Q and a afterwards with, uh, the director, um, John Hillcoat, Nick Cave and Noah Taylor, who played one of the Chicago I bet the guy who gets hit with the spade, uh, <laughs> basically, uh, by Gary Oldman. Um, like, how do you get all these screens for Q&As? Like, that was that was was I just like a this. showcase. That was on, on, if you've got a local showcase cinema, they do a lot of this stuff. They're, they're pretty good. Um, but it was quite interesting because he said two things I learned from that first one. Talking about the accents, apparently Noah Taylor um, spent six weeks learning a southern accent and then turned up on set and then realised that, no, he should have learned a Chicago one because he was playing one of the gangsters <laughs> instead. <laughs> um and um at one point uh like in a pre-reading tom hardy went to uh whispered in nick cave's ear i'm playing this as a butch lesbian <laughs> um his character and nick cave just didn't tell the director <laughs> that because apparently tom hardy uh, was based on a butch lesbian and the grandmother from the tweety pie cartoons that's where he <laughs> based his because he, he saw himself as the mother hen of this these brothers and when when you know that you say, actually he did do he did do that <laughs> <laughs> he is very much the mother hen of this shit. and um a lot of his kind of menace is unspoken and uh, um i i did like him in this but yeah i did have a few problems understanding i thought he personally hardly just had presence by the way i think yeah, you know eat the whole yeah. thing you watch it and you were thinking like old film stars, like, you know, yes. some of the classics. Like, you know, you watch Casablanca and, and every, yeah. the, all the yeah. main characters yeah. that have presence and Hardy was just there yes. being he's A step above the two brothers, definitely. Mm. Um, but I also thought Guy Pearce was outstanding. I loved Guy Pearce I've, in this.
0: Yeah, his character was really good as kind of the, well, he was a nasty, corrupt police Oh, I think he wasn't a standard policeman, but he was an agent of some government agency. I can't remember which one now. But he's just had so many kind of character traits and tics and everything that he's. I
2: mean, he I thought was, I would disagree with everything that's been said so far. I'm sorry. Oh, interesting. I thought. You loved the film, but you didn't like Guy Pearce. I didn't think he was. Uh, well, I, I, he was okay in the role he was doing, but I thought Sheila Beefs. He basically was the only actor who put in a lot of hard work. I thought everyone else was just quite good. Gary Oldman was great, but he didn't have to do much really, did he? Tom Hardy was great, but he, like Jerry says, it, most of it was just kind of um, posturing but, and stuff. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't doing what he's traditionally I, I, think, I think
1: that was, I think Hardy's performance was really good. I think the fact that Shia Beef looked like he was working hard is probably the, the wrong thing. You don't want him to look no, like that, he's working that, hard that, to that, act. Like,
2: I don't mean like he. It looked like he was struggling and work, but I, I mean he put in so much. Um, uh, I, I don't know, just his ability. And I thought it was really surprising because he he just came across so naturally and so developed. I don't know. I don't really know how to to sort of say it without be without putting that negative tone on it when I say working hard. I mean, he looked like he put so much effort into it and he pulled it off and he was brilliant and he had lots of different scenes where he pulled off lots of different emotions quite
1: cleverly. You know? I, I thought there was, um, one particular scene I really liked was when he was first flirting with, um, the character played by Mia, and I'll uh, get her name wrong again. I'm not even going to try. Um, Jerry, you've said it for me. <laughs> is, it, is it was- Wasikowski? Yeah, that's the one. Um, the scene where, she, um, like she's waiting for her dad to come yeah. out of the shop and they're having a flirt. There's a nice, and it ends quite nicely with a little joke, um, I I thought I thought that those two had some nice chemistry um and I also thought Jessica Chastain was very very good as well uh I was, I thought she was a a great a great again a great presence and you could tell she's got a theatrical background apparently um Al Pacino discovered her um off broadway somewhere and he's like been instrumental in her because she was in iron man two, and i know she's been in a few other things recently she's in the help she was good in the help I like that's that. it yes yeah um so yeah i th- I, d- I do think there were a lot of good acting performances i love the soundtrack the uh kind of bluegrass velvet underground mm-hmm. the cover of white light white heat that was fantastic um uh, and like the nick cave original stuff uh, it looked really nice uh, you know filmed in georgia for me there was all these good bits but it just didn't quite pull together exactly um, uh, and it was interesting because i know on this podcast people have heard me moaning about films being too long needlessly i actually felt this was too short i felt yeah that it this could have definitely, been definitely, a bit definitely more definitely. epic I I've, I've thought, we've got all the ingredients here for something like a, a Goodfellas or an Untoucher, you know, this kind of crime epic. I I felt it could have been given a bit more room to move. Possibly. Well, like you were saying about Jessica Chastain and yeah, with, to be honest with me, Mia Wasikowska yeah. and also with Gary Oldman, they didn't get yeah. enough time to really do anything, I didn't think. Yeah. Like, Jessica Chastain was good in what she did, but she was on it for, you know, in the background in a few scenes and and she spoke a few times, that was it, you know. Um, I thought I thought it needed
2: a lot more and and the other brother she, Howard, what, what the hell did he do? Yeah. Yeah, Howard was a bit underused. I think the other two, though, they didn't really, you didn't really need to do much more than they did. But, I mean, it would have been nice to see more of, like, Gary Oldman's yeah. character, but it probably wouldn't, I mean, it wasn't that kind of film, was it? It wasn't really a, a gangster film. It was, no. it, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was,
1: possibly it's due to the just the source material. Um, the source material in itself wasn't huge. It was, was far more um, a, a personal story rather than a big crime yeah. story. Uh, so I think a lot of that, you know, has come... And again, maybe a bit of the marketing hasn't helped here in that if you watch the trailer for Lawless, it's about a minute and a half yeah. of things blowing up and Gary Oldman looking cool as fuck. Um and then you go and watch the film and go, actually, it's a completely different film to that. It's, um, it's kind of an, a, a
0: good film hidden behind an average film. Oh. If that makes yeah, sense. A <laughs> <laughs> <It's definitely
1: laughs> I a think, softball, honestly, Steve. I, a, I think it, in it, terms of the best comparison I can give it is, it's a bit like comparing the assassination of Jesse
2: James with all the Christians in that there's not as much going on with it. And it's a bit
1: more slow pace, but then it wasn't dragged out to make up for that slower pace. I don't think, I think it could have done with being, you know, like two and a half hours long, like the assassination of Jesse James, where it was, you know, it was, it was steady and it was thoughtful and stuff. And there was all the quiet spaces where Tom Hardy was looking menacing and there was mm. the tension building up, but he never built that tension to the kind of extent that it really got explosive. And, but there wasn't enough action either to make it, you know, justify that sort of shorter time period.
2: I think, I don't know if I agree with that either. I mean, I think the action that was in it, it, it wasn't massive explosions all over the place, but it was kind of, it was there, and it was, well, it did help the film, but it didn't overpower anything else. I think uh, perhaps maybe the fault with the film lies in that it's a lot of style, and the substance mm. is just, it's its just kind of a, a bit shallow, I guess, compared to the style that, mm. that it's its I mean, trade. It, it,
0: it did look, Fantastic, I mean, it did you know really set the scene of where it was. It looked, you know, the costumes and locations, the sets all look really
2: and know, the score. Good. I thought the, I mean, yeah. you know, we mentioned the use of the sort of white light, white heat and stuff, but it, it the score just really fit with it. Everything yeah. just kind of it's connected. A great soundtrack, yeah, yeah. yeah even you think, like you know the more modern stuff, it really fit. In. it yeah. Yeah. fit well. It did. I, I was really impressed with that. Um, but I did watch Once Upon a Time in the West for the first time uh, the morning before mm. I went to see it. And actually, the, one of the trailers that was on in the cinema before before this was Killing uh, Killing Them Softly. Killing... Oh, I'm very excited about that. Well, I, I first read about it when we were talking about Cannes before. Mm. And, uh, they were saying it was a very odd film to be shown at Cannes Film Festival, you know, this heist film. And that, that was the first time I'd seen the trailer. And I thought, yeah. actually, I think that looks quite good. So I don't know whether I was just in that kind of mood for something that's a bit stylish and, you know, I don't know, perhaps a, a, that might have been a, an influence on why I enjoyed it so much. I was just already in that kind of mood, but. Um, I think what we haven't mentioned as well is this is one violent film. This was a brutal,
1: brutal film. Yeah, yeah brutal is exactly the word. Um, there's a scene involving some tar, which mm. I had to look away. Um. The use of brass knuckles. Or the, yeah, it was. It's- yeah, it, it, and there are a few other scenes as well, which will be obvious once you've seen it, the scenes that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but yeah, it's, it's certainly, um, it deserves its eighteen certificate. Um, that's well, at the same time, there was like, you know, there's a certain scene where they could have been very gratuitous with something and they just left it sort mm-hmm. of in a gap. And there was other scenes where they, they just, Showed enough, and then other things they left in the dark, a bit like you know Scarface with the chainsaw sort of scene. Yeah, right. they built it up enough, and then you think you've seen it, but you haven't actually. Yeah, so it wasn't totally gratuitous. The I, yeah, that was was, kind I'd of fit with film, wasn't. I thought. Yeah, it 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 was a violent film. It was a violent time, um, and of course Hillcoat did the proposition, and he's done the road as well. So he is used to pretty bleak. Dark, violent themes. It seems to be a real kind of um, yeah. uh, a, a thread running through his films. What I did find quite interesting was um, last week the top two films at the box office, Dread and Lawless, were both 18s, and it's the first well, it's, um, first time we've had a box office number one that's an 18 since t- 2010. Um, and I, I was interested to see this because it shows that there is a market for adult films and i don't mean sexy rumpy pumpy <laughs> adult films i mean adult age, which again which then makes the uh, the fact that i've seen this week that taken 2 has been given a 12a certificate um and the studio asked what can we do to get a 12a and that is entirely the wrong decision that they should stop chasing this kind of 12 to 15-year-old demographic with certain films, and they should just say, do you know what? Some films should be a 15, should be an 18. And it, it really annoys me that they're meddling like that.
2: Mm, it's a tricky one, really, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it, you, can, you can understand them wanting to chase a certain audience because they'll sell more tickets, mm. get more money, and all that kind of thing, but... You know, something like Dread was very good as an action yeah. film and it, it actually, it made a lot of sense for it to be an 18. I did yeah. sort of make a comment on Letterboxd on the website about how I thought it was perhaps a little bit too, um, you know, macho at times with mm. some of the violence. But Taken's just, that's a really odd one. Because I the know. first film was so, it was just full of a lot of violent scenes yeah. and stuff. So it makes I- you st- do you want got to understand what the the creative decision to do that. Apparently,
1: for? they've cut three scenes from it to get to, and it also does make me think. Right, okay, they've they've asked to get twelve to That means the producers of taken two, are actively um, looking for twelve year olds to come and watch their film. That just doesn't I mean, seem how me. easily with well, me. when you were a teenager, you always liked them kind of. I mean, I used to watch like Arnie films exactly. like it, so oh, exactly. all like kind of stuff. Oh, exactly. But yeah, you know, but the fact is, you got them on. Do You watch them on video or on TV and things I like mean, that. Really, They're actually, uh, and the filmmakers weren't look trying to get twelve-year-olds to come see it. This is a case where filmmakers have gone, we want twelve-year-olds to come and see taken to. Really, that though. I mean, how strict? Me.
0: How strict are they at the cinema on ages and that? It's not. You know, oh, no, oh, I've than seen people been
2: ID'd recently. It's, it's not really it's, brilliant. Who got ID'd? Like, I got just, ID'd like, to see Austin Powers once. I remember that. That was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> yeah.
1: me You could take an eight-year-old to go and see a twelve A. Yeah, this is this is where it is. As long as they're with a grown-up, it could be a. I don't know. It could be a six-year-old going to. That's that's the issue. Oh, that's one of the issues I've got here. I'm You've not got I'm a quite question. a libertarian. You've probably got to question
0: the grown-up. His, well, his yeah, meant to age if he's taking a six-year-old to go and see.
1: But, but they <laughs> Take him to, that, that, and that's the thing, and they shouldn't be given the bloody opportunity to. That, that bit annoys me anyway slightly. But the other thing is, what's happened is, people like us, who, uh, and I was late on the scene, but who really enjoyed the first film, uh, the loyal fans who made the first film a success, have been shafted. By the company going and the those bits that made the first film a success, we're watering them down because we want to. We want kids to come and watch it now. It's like yeah, if thanks so much it, for the support. But we want a load of kids to come and see yeah, this now.
0: You liked all the swearing and the guns and the blood exactly. and that, but now it's we're now, taking loads of it out.
1: With the 12A, you can say fuck once <laughs> in the film. It's going to be a Steven Seagal film, but with Liam Neeson. Yeah. But am re- But obviously, we're still going to review it for this. But I've I've massively, massively lowered my expectations on that film. After, and after it's um... a shame because Lawless has made money. Dread has made money. You don't have to water your film down just to make money. I tell you what else made money that was an 18. You remember American Gangster, Ridley Scott film? That was an 18. That was fucking. Yeah. true. That made like 200 million quid. Yeah.
0: It's mean, huge. You know, you said you get one fuck in a 12A. Yeah. According to Total Recall, you can have free boobs. But that's it.
2: <laughs> oh, dear.
1: <laughs> and I
0: mean, in any other film other than Total Recall, I don't know how that worked.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Total Recall was another case where actually that could have done being adulted up yeah. as well, to be honest. Um, yeah, you know, I don't want to see gratuitous sex and violence for that. Well, actually, I do. I love gratuitous sex and violence. What am I talking about? But no, I'd, if it's relevant to the story... And you know, a man who has a very specific set of skills and will hunt down and kill everyone, do you know what? A bit of violence and swearing probably does fit into that story quite nicely. It's like um, it's like it's going to be, maybe he's going, to say, Oh damn, damn you all. Yeah, it's going, alright. Oh, I I'll I'll hold judgment but I'm I'm worried and I've got massively off uh tangent here and I apologize.
0: Yeah. Uh it's time to wrap up the podcast now, but just a nice little note um, before we wrap up is that the first two film, well in fact the first three films that we've reviewed as cinema releases are actually released on DVD and Blu-ray in the next two weeks which is uh Cabin in the Woods, Avengers Assemble and The Raid. So we've come full circle. Nice. We, we've That's a nice start. We've got to our first DVD release of our first cinema releases. Avengers Assemble will be out by the time this podcast goes up and then Cabin in the Woods and the raid. Not long after.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, it makes it, it makes it feel like we've been around a little bit now. It's, it's nice. I feel like we're part of the the film furniture. Oh my God! There's a trade, Sorry, my mute television in the corner is showing a trailer for Taken Two. There's no way that <laughs> 12A. The trailer itself looks horrifically violent. Sorry about that. I've been easily distracted tonight.
0: <laughs> so yes. um I think James has got some plans for our podcast that we did that, that with those films featured. I mean, you can listen back to how awful we were when we first started and before yeah. Owen joined oh, us. Oh, God,
1: imagine when we didn't have Owen. Oh, <laughs> Owen. oh happier times.
2: <laughs> yeah, those days, eh? <laughs> Bless him. Um, before I was doing this podcast, watching yeah. films every day, trying to pick ones that I can use, writing up notes and all that, I never had to uh, type up.
1: Before. Oh no. <laughs> me and, I'm me and Jerry date now. Dude, these two are too cool for school. Yeah. Well, I still don't have to type up notes. That's how I roll, yes. baby. I do
0: it on the night. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm the only one who makes notes in the cinema, though. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, next week's new release is that we're reviewing
1: James. Oh, you're waiting for me to jump in and tell you, yeah. yeah. Um I think we're doing Paranorman. Which um, is um a biopic of my early life. Yeah. Um yeah, it's Paranormal yeah, I think so. Uh, Premium Rush is also out, but we'll probably we've done a lot of kind of thrillers in a row. Probably do Paranorman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is how, how organized it is. Yeah.
0: And the triple bill you'll be getting on Friday is best bar Steens. Yes. <laughs> So look forward to that. Um, so that's all for this week. I'd like to thank James, Jerry and Owen. Uh, I'd like to thank Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com for our music. And I'd like to thank you for listening um, and join us at the same time next week.